Welcome to Nerds at Church, a podcast about nerdery and the Bible. I'm Pastor Kay, and I use pronouns like she and her. And I'm Pastor Emily, and my pronouns are they, them, theirs. In this episode, we'll discuss the second Sunday after Epiphany, also known as Lectionary 2, which this year falls on the 17th of January. A brief content notification for this episode. In both the deep dive and the discussion on the second reading, we talk about bodies and sex work and the biblical word fornication. Also, in the second reading, we talk about a couple examples of non-consensual control of someone else. Check out the episode description for links to the Bible passages and other references we make in this episode. So, for those of you who jumped ahead or checked out in the full context of our First Corinthians reading, um, there's a place where Paul is talking about fornication, and it's a little complicated, partly because of the context and partly because it's a different language. So we're going to deep dive into fornication and sex work and bodies and all of that stuff for you to kind of unpack that in the context of the Bible. Yes. The first reminder as we dive into this is that for many of us, I think for both Pastor Kay and I, I think we both agree on this, Paul is a colleague. He's not Jesus, right? He's a fellow Christian. He's pretty good Mm -hmm. at it. He has some good ideas, but he's also not God. Yep. And he's someone who is situated very much within his own context. And for his context... There is a lot that he says that is liberative. His context is 2,000 years ago, so it's a different context than we're in today. Yes. So within that larger framework and reminder, to dive into the actual Greek a little bit, the word for fornication, which is also, sometimes it's translated fornication, sometimes it's translated sexual immorality. The Greek word is porneia which has to do with selling bodies. That's kind of the root of that word. So when we think about this passage in particular, Paul's using the example of sex work, of selling bodies for sex. For money. Selling sex for money. Yes. But that's not the thing that he's actually talking about, right? That's not the deeper issue that he's concerned with because it's in the context of... You know, the comments that all things are lawful for me, but not all things are beneficial. That food is meant for the stomach. There's this sense of valuing bodies that was not common in Paul's day and actually is not very common in our time either. Right. The ways that we value bodies is so rooted in capitalism and the worth of a body being in its ability to produce capital usually for someone else. Which is terrifying. Which is terrifying and which is really harmful. Yes. So when Paul is talking about selling bodies, what we, those of us particularly who are not sex workers, have to ask is, how do we sell our own bodies and how do we require others to sell their bodies? Because selling bodies is not just about sex. No. So... I think particularly as someone who currently lives in Iowa in a pandemic, one of the things that came out this year was the way that meatpacking plants 
for, have forced their workers, not necessarily the administration, right? But the... The administration of the plants. Yes. Not necessarily the administration of the plants, yeah. But right. the on-the-ground workers, the, right. the ones who are making the closest, maybe minimum wage, maybe a little bit more than minimum wage, but are the lowest paid employees. And the least powerful. And the least powerful. And their bodies were intentionally put on the line. Their bodies were sold to the pandemic so that people could continue to eat meat. And were treated with contempt. They were treated with contempt. Literally, there were managers betting on how many people would get COVID. Yeah. It's part of a larger system, right? So the managers that were betting got fired. The ones we know about. That we know about. Which actually is a little bit of scapegoating because it's a bigger system that was at play. Right. There wasn't PPE provided. Right now, the vaccinations in Iowa are going to healthcare workers, which is really important. And I am one of the ones who benefits from that. But it's not going to meatpacking plant workers. It's not going to fast food industry workers. It's not going to a lot of the low-wage earners who are making money. And so this is... And I believe there's currently a conversation going on about who gets it next. And a lot of people are saying essential workers. But I bet that there's going to be some disagreements about who exactly that is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's... I mean, teachers are in line for it in Iowa before grocery store fast food clerks. workers or grocery store clerks or any of that. Yeah. So when we think about what it looks like to, to sell your own body or to force somebody else to sell their body, we as a culture are forcing meatpacking workers to sell their body for our sake. Yeah. Right? I work part-time as a hospital chaplain, so I spend a 14-hour shift that's an overnight shift sleeping on a really uncomfortable bed, getting a terrible night's sleep, that is a part of selling my body. Yes. For, for a good reason, but it is also selling my body. So when we think about selling bodies, I think it's so easy for us to just look at sexual slavery and then broaden that to all sex work. Or human trafficking. Or human trafficking and broaden it to all. But we, we connect it to sex work. Right. But there is so much human trafficking that happens for sweatshops, for other labor situations, and there's sex work that happens that is not forced. It's not coercive. Sure. And so what Paul is really getting at is more about honoring ourselves and our bodies. I would also say that if you want a really interesting take on this concept, talk to a disabled person if they're up for that conversation. Um, because the conversation around disability and the inherent worth of a person and their contribution to the capitalist scheme can be very eye-opening for those of us who are used to being able-bodied. Yes. Also, disclaimer, don't just go up to random disabled people and ask them to do emotional labor for you. That's right. not That's cool. not what we meant. Yeah. Also, you can follow lots of really great people who are doing this work on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And usually they have a Patreon. And sometimes YouTube. Yeah. So if you're interested, let us know and we will connect you to the folks that we follow and listen to and learn from. Sure. We are glad. We are always glad to do that when it comes to ability and ableism and disability. Yes. And also when it comes to racism and queerness and classism. We've Other axes of, of oppression. people that we 
follow. So we're happy to share that. Let us know. The other piece that I just want to highlight a little bit is, and this connects again with the COVID meatpacking, right, is we have called frontline workers, we have called essential workers, heroes. And part of what we've done in calling them heroes is make their deaths acceptable to us. Right. So yeah. one of the pushes that we had earlier on in the pandemic was the hashtag essential, not expendable. Yes. Essential workers are not there to be sacrificed. On, right. We're not sacrificing them on the altars of capitalism. But that is, in fact, what we have been doing. And so how do we shift that to make sure that they get the protections that they need, that their bodies and their livelihoods and their lives are honored as holy? Because once we call someone a hero, we, A, expect that they might die in the process, because that's what heroes do, and Mm -hmm. B, don't expect them to want to be properly paid for their work, because why would a hero want to do that? Mm -hmm. And the reality is we should be paying anyone who is working front lines. Or at all, a living wage. We should, well, we should be paying everyone a living wage, but particularly... We should be paying hazard pay for everyone who works in a hospital, especially the environmental services people, the people that clean up the hospital, especially fast food and restaurant workers, especially meatpacking plant workers, especially those who who are grocery cashiers, who are running buses and transportation. Those are the people that deserve to be first, first or second in line for vaccines, to be yeah. paid a living wage to get the raises not you know the 200,000 plus dollars that we pay senators every year yeah so honor your body but also honor other people's body and the holiness of them and capitalism is not actually the way to do that no or indeed you know christian much yeah capitalism not actually christian For those of you who want to dive more into what it looks like to honor bodies and celebrate bodies, and Marcella Althaus-Reed is a wonderful theologian um, who has done a lot of really great work, and some of it is more accessible than others. So while her kind of most well-renowned book is Indecent Theology, her books From Feminist Theology to Indecent Theology or her book, Liberation, Theology, and Sexuality, are a bit more accessible to look at what it looks like to move from a theology that maybe we're a little bit more familiar with. Kay and I certainly rely on feminist theology as part of like our default of being feminist theologians and pastors, but to move like how that journey happens from that place to what Marcella Althaus-Reed Yes. Calls indecent theology, which is a theology of bodies and of sexuality. And there is also a growing school of disability theology uh, in mm-hmm. Christian thought that is becoming really interesting. Well, always has yes. been really interesting. Yeah. One book that I'm looking forward to reading, because disability is not just about physical disabilities, is called Blessed Are the Crazy Breaking the Silence About Mental Illness, Family, and the Church uh, by Sarah Griffith Lund. And Uh, It talks about the church and mental illness and how those two have interacted um, and could theoretically interact. Nice. 
Our first reading today is from 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, possibly also including verses 11 through 20, which are included in the Bible passage link for this episode. God calls young Samuel, who is confused and believes Eli is calling him. But when Eli realizes God is finally speaking to someone after a long time of that rarely happening, he instructs Samuel to answer, Speak, becoming one, for your servant is listening. So one of the themes for this passage is disembodied voices. Mm. I know. Not always creepy, but sometimes. <laughs> this reminded me of Frozen 2, where Elsa hears this melody that happens. It's a. It sounds like a voice, kind of. She can repeat it in her voice, but there's this melody that keeps calling to her and she can't figure out what is going on. And part of, well, like the majority of the story is figuring out what exactly this melody is calling, what it is and what it's calling her to. Sure. And so thinking about Samuel also like hearing Samuel, Samuel, and being like, hmm, what's going on? This must be Eli. No, it's not Eli, but it's Eli, but it's not, but it is, but it's not. Oh, hey, God. I bet Samuel didn't think that his life in the temple would be easy, but he may not have expected this many wind sprints. So. <laughs> right, in the middle of the night, yeah. especially. Yeah. As we dive into verse one, we hear about now the boy Samuel was ministering to God under Eli and thinking about like the apprenticeship. So Samuel was particularly dedicated by his mother, Hannah, to God and to service in the temple. But I love that there's this like apprenticeship model that there's still a couple places where we get that in our culture today, but there's so much less apprenticeship model because we've like institutionalized higher education and those sorts of things to do it instead. But one of the book series that I'm about to reread if I ever finish the book that I'm actually on <laughs> um, is the Ember in the Ashes series with the fourth book of Ember in the Ashes came out in December and I we're recording this just before Christmas but I'm fairly confident I will get the fourth book for Christmas and in the first book which is by who the book Saba Tahir it's fantastic you okay. should all read it so one of the things that comes out in the first book and to a certain extent the second and third, Laya, one of the main characters, her brother Darren, they're both scholars, which is like kind of a category group. Okay. Culture of people, community of people. They're both scholars, and Darren has been spying on Spiro Teluman, who is like the star smith in the city for not the scholars, but for right. the like ruling class. And then Spiro Teleman catches Darren at one point and sees his drawings and sees that he has what it takes to be a craftsman, a smithy, sure. the way that he is to provide these like phenomenal weapons. And so takes him under his wing and is like teaching him how to make it and how, and like Darren is writing down all the plans and drawing them and stuff. So it's just this, like, beautiful, like, apprenticeship within the context of, like, you know, war and violence and weapons and all of that stuff, which is, you know, yeah, not a real-life thing that we should aspire to. 
I don't think I did a great job of selling the book, but it'll come up um, multiple more times in this episode because I'm so excited about rereading it. So we'll have more chances. In verse two, we hear Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see. So listen, just because you have just because you have bad eyesight doesn't mean that you can't know what's going on. I know that casual Star Trek watchers would have you believe that advanced technology means that no one will need to wear glasses for the most part in the future. But those of us who have watched a little more Star Trek than your average person will also remember that Geordi in The Next Generation needed a pair of, well, not exactly glasses, his visor, but they it performed a similar task. Oh, I remember that. That's like, I've never even watched Star Trek and I know that one. Yes. There was also a character in Deep Space Nine who, because the starbase wasn't designed for people from her planet with her planet's low gravity, needed to use a wheelchair for a while. Granted, that episode is complicated and wheelchairs are a complicated topic in society today, and everybody probably could have handled things a little better. And then in verse 8... Samuel comes to Eli for the third time in a row, thinking that Eli has been calling him. And uh, he goes, he's perfectly patient about the whole thing. And I like to think of this part of the story as sort of an alternate version of the old folktale, The Boy Who Cried Wolf, (laughs) in which a boy is bored and supposed to be doing something and instead keeps screaming that there's a wolf because at least then he gets attention Um, and so uh, the way that story ends is that the last time he calls wolf it's because there actually is one but no one believes him anymore and so he gets eaten because old folk tales are generally pretty mean to small children (laughs) who have Uh any kind of moral failing um, or just lack of patience yes getting eaten was actually a pretty common end to a lot of those old folk tales Uh, instead In this case, in this Bible story, God is not calling wolf when there is no wolf. Like, that's not what's going on. Uh, And God is presumably not bored, although I suppose I shouldn't make that claim because it's not like we could know. I don't... uh, Maybe. I don't know if boredom is something that God experiences. I guess there has to be because God experiences everything, but... Right. And, like, I have met people that I, I have to believe that God understands boredom because God has to watch them. But... That's maybe not the kindest thing I've ever said. <laughs> definitely but, not the kindest thing you've ever said, probably. Definitely not, no. The, the thing is, is that Samuel remains perfectly patient, perfectly willing to keep doing this thing when he believes that Eli is calling him over and over again uh, and keeps going to him. And I think that's a illustration of probably exactly the opposite of the vice that the boy who cried wolf had. Uh, it's, it's the virtue that is the opposite of that vice in that he is patient and willing to continue doing this vaguely odd thing. Although maybe he wasn't sprinting constantly to Eli. Maybe he was just walking like a normal person. I don't know. Who knows? That's what headcanons are for. Yes. In verse 18, in kind of the last part of this passage, God has told Samuel some pretty bad things coming up about Eli. And Eli has an inkling that God's not happy with him because of what his sons have done and what he hasn't stopped his sons from doing. And so in verse 18... Eli has now told Samuel, you have to tell me everything or may it all happen to you as well. And so we hear that Samuel told Eli everything and hid nothing from him. Then Eli said, it is God. Let God do what seems good. And so there's this sense of like faithfulness and loyalty, even to like his own distress or detriment. 
that Eli is experiencing, right? He knows he messed up and he knows there are consequences for messing up and he still wants to be faithful to God. And so he says, all right, like I will take the consequences. And it reminded me of Helene Akila. I don't actually know how to pronounce it because I've only like read these names in my head in the Ember <laughs> and Ember in the Ashes series. <laughs> but Helene ends up, there's like a competition and she ends up being appointed as Blood Shrike, which is like the head, the head military person for the person who is ruling everybody, right? The like right hand person. Okay. Because of her loyalty and faithfulness to the government and to like this system that she's in, she takes that job even though it means potentially killing or at a very at the very least losing her best friend who happens to also be this guy that she really likes. And so there's this like sense of faithfulness that like literally she is like basically has to execute him and if she's not faithful in how she does it there's like all of these other things that could go wrong and so she has to like do it and and she knows the pain that will come and she knows how much it's gonna suck but her loyalty and her faithfulness to this larger thing and to like these creatures that are predicting the future and stuff leads her to do it or for a new testament reference i think that also sounds a lot like christ saying to God, but your will and not mine be done when it comes to the whole crucifixion thing. Yeah, but that requires a lot more unpacking Yes. than just that one comment. Probably. Our second reading is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. Paul explains that all things are lawful for a Christian, but that doesn't mean that all things are beneficial. And he uses sex as an illustration. So we've already talked about this passage a fair amount in our deep dive. But one of the main themes that I pull out of this passage is actually that your body is good and your body glorifies God. There's so much possibility for this passage to be twisted into into a purity culture thing, which is not actually faithful to the Bible. It's not biblical. You've heard Paul rant about other stuff in the Bible. Can you imagine how Paul would rant in reaction to this passage getting misused like that? Right. Paul would have some things to say about purity culture, for sure. And extremely long sentences. (laughs) Every time Paul says anything, it's extremely long sentences. Yes. Yeah. But, But Paul, again and again, is coming back to that even in the ways that our bodies are not permanent necessarily, there is this goodness about our bodies, that our bodies are our bodies and that is good. Our bodies are each different, our bodies look different, our bodies function differently, and our bodies are good. And that is part of how And that's still true even if our bodies don't function the way we would like them to. Like, for Mm -hmm. example, I am lactose intolerant. I miss real ice cream (laughs) from the days when I didn't know it was real ice cream that was doing the the horrible things to me. But, you know, also, my body is still good. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. It doesn't take away the like annoyances or frustrations we might have with our bodies, but it sometimes are much more serious than lactose intolerance. Yes. yes. Yep. But it is important to, to, for us to name that your body is good, that the ways that you live your life and the ways that you co-create with God, who your body, how your body is, those, that's evidence of your goodness and your reflecting God's image, bearing God's image. Part of that is in your body. Yes. 
When we reach verse 12, we hear Paul say, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. He's referencing the fact that the way that we prioritize our lives can affect our faith or our lives, surprisingly enough. Paul, in particular, seems really interested in the bodily or physical urges uh, that we all have. In the following verse, Paul uses food as an example. We enjoy food, but it's not something that matters on the cosmic, eternal scale of God, you might say. The Great British Bake Off is a lot of fun, but cosmically speaking, whether or not your tiramisu turns out properly is not something that God is terribly concerned with, unless God is just as obsessed with the Great British Bake Off as some of the rest of us. What? God is definitely as obsessed with the Great British Bake Off as I am. I don't know what you're talking about. But does God prefer the old version or the new version? Well, God definitely prefers the Mary Berry version. But that is what I, I prefer. And God is clearly made in my image, obviously. Because <laughs> that's the direction sarcasm. that works. Sarcasm. <laughs> After that verse, he Paul uses sex as an example for many, many, many more verses. And there are countless fictional examples of people's bodily urges, you might say, getting in the way of those same people doing their jobs, doing what's right, honoring their relationships, doing lots of other things, etc. Since I am demisexual, these kind of stories often have me yelling at the screen or the page quite a lot at some length with enthusiasm. <laughs> Especially when fiction uses sexual urges to completely overcome a character. Two examples that immediately spring to mind are the Hathor episode of Stargate or the Lorelei episode of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which does seem weirdly oddly similar to the episode of Stargate. Not that you're bitter about that at all. No, of course not. Both of which have a character with unusual magical supernatural powers of some sort use their powers to control the hormones and therefore control the actions and choices of other people, mostly men. I went a very different route, probably because I was doing the deep dive and so had all of that stuff up in the deep dive area. But I was thinking about the all things are lawful but not all things are beneficial, or but I will not be dominated by anything. It reminded me of the Hunger Games prequel about the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, which is President Snow's kind of younger years prequel thing. And as he's trying to be a mentor-ish for some of the early Hunger Games, there's this sense that like the Hunger Games don't have rules, right? Anything goes in the Hunger Games. But at the same time, there are some things that are not okay. And so he is like weaving that line of, this is technically not against the law, but I know I probably shouldn't do it. And how to navigate that and what, which is kind of the opposite of what Paul is saying, right? Paul is saying, just because you can doesn't mean you should. I feel like Paul would probably also say, murder is bad. Don't murder people. Right. <laughs> Again, with that reminder, yes, it's true. The Hunger Games as a whole, like, encouraging murder, not great. Yes. In verse 19, we then hear, uh, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? And in another one of those, fan fiction impacts your life and will not shut up even when you're talking about more serious ideas, moments which I seem to have a lot, there is a Marvel Cinematic Universe fanfic which I hopefully will be able to find a link to, although which might not be rated G. 
where Darcy Lewis becomes a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent, and at one point she has a conversation with a fellow agent about the whole body is a temple idea, and she points out that there are many different kinds of temples, and one person might think of their body as one kind of temple, and mm. another person might think of their body as a, diff a very different kind of temple, and that will impact how they treat their bodies. Like, some people see their body as a very harsh, very strict, very human sacrifices happen on the top floor regularly kind of temple. And she prefers to see her body as more of a lush Bollywood kind of place with lots of dance numbers. <laughs> this reminds me of how... What you understand, treat your body as a temple, means for you can be very different. Some people say that that means that you should constantly do very hard workouts and keep your body in the best physical peak condition, even if that means being kind of mean to your body. And other people believe that that means just, you know, try to keep it in generally good shape, but also don't hurt yourself in the process because temples aren't hopefully about that. Which is really people, more my situation. Respect your body and listen to what your body's needs are. Yes. And follow that. That's my version. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. I actually really liked this verse, have really liked this verse as a helpful reminder to me. Um, I've written it sometimes on mirrors in where I live as reminders that, like, I think I've seen stickers too that people put on mirrors that say, like, reflections in the mirror may be distorted by societal expectations of yes and standards of beauty or something which is a fun a fun way of like reminding people that there's so much that goes into how we understand our bodies and how we value our bodies yes. once again your body is good your body is yes. keeping you alive your body is you yay bodies um i also once again looked at verse 19 and once again was reminded of an ember in the ashes. No, really? You know, from my mind a lot. And the connection I made actually, like, doesn't make sense in a lot of ways. But Elias, who is the top, like, military student in the story, the mantra that his family, who is, his family comes from, like, top military people, high, like, important, and he was in some ways orphan, like his mom gave him up. And so he was raised actually as a tribal kid and then has been like reintegrated into the family lineage and stuff. Cool. So his like family line, the mantra and meditation for them is the field of battle is my temple. The sword point is my priest. The dance of death is my prayer. The killing blow is my release. And it's really interesting the ways that as he struggles with all of the death and the destruction and the military stuff in his family and in his school, this still is the mantra that he comes back to that centers and grounds him. Yes. I much prefer my body as a temple of the Holy Spirit within me, which I have from God, to the field of battle is my temple. But, you know, yeah. to each their own, please don't kill people. Murder bad. Murder bad. Our gospel reading for this episode is from John chapter 1, verses 43 through 51. Jesus invites Philip to join him, who invites Nathaniel, who is won over after he asks whether anything good can come out of Nazareth. One of the themes in this passage is the collecting of followers. So Jesus is like calling this person, you talk to this person, and this person joins, and this person joins. 
He's got to collect them all. Yes. <laughs> got to catch them all. Did not initially remind me of Pokemon, but <laughs> did remind me of the West Wing. There's a couple of episodes that do, like, origin stories slash flashbacky things. Um, and so they go back you to... You can tell the- because CJ has a different haircut. Yes. So they- <laughs> and she gets... She falls into the pool. Yes. So they go back to see how each of the different, like, main staff members were recruited or, like, joined in in the initial election campaign. Um, And so you get, like, like, how Toby got connected and then how Toby brought in CJ and how Josh Lyman got pulled in and then he brought in Sam and... And Donna, Donna kind of pulled in herself. Inserted herself because <laughs> Donna is awesome that way. Yes. Um, but yeah, this you're like this person and this person and this person and this person joining together. Yes. Then in as the passage begins, we hear that Jesus found Philip specifically and said to him, "Follow me." And then Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, and so it's this connector piece also of. Like in Lord of the Rings, when the for the Fellowship of the Rings and how that all comes together, Merry and Pippin end up part of the initial adventure and then part of the Fellowship, really because they're also from the Shire, where Frodo and Samwise are from. And so they tag along right. and then they just keep tagging along. But it's this beautiful, like, follow me. And I guess you two can come too, kind of thing. <laughs> And then in verse 46, when we hear Nathaniel sarcastic, I assume it's sarcasm, I don't know, dismissively asks, so Nathaniel dismissively asks, um, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And that, I feel like there's an almost word-for-word quote. I don't think there is, but that is definitely the sense that we get in the beginning of the Hunger Games books about District 12, where it's like, can anything good come out of District 12? They've had one champ, like one victor in the entire history of the Hunger Games. Yeah. In verse 47, when we hear, when Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, he said of him, here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. I don't know if I'm supposed to be doing this, but I... I'm now immediately characterizing Nathaniel here as being like Drax from Guardians of the Galaxy, who not only isn't deceitful, but really can only deal in the full truth without any tact whatsoever. That is, I think, what you are supposed to be doing. (laughs) I now want to go through and reread the Gospel of John and see how Nathaniel is characterized. Where else does Nathaniel come up for that? Yeah. Also, I would like to point out that the spelling of Nathaniel in the Gospel of John is a little unusual compared to how... I'm used to seeing the name Nathaniel spelled uh, in more modern times. It's more like Michael. The the A-E-L ending instead of the I-E-L ending. Mm-hmm. So I always trip over that. So if you trip over that, you're at least as normal as I am, which it doesn't, doesn't really say well a lot. But <laughs> Or bodes really well, because who wants to be normal anyway? Exactly. 
And then finally, in verse 49, in this verse, Nathaniel gets super enthusiastic almost immediately with very little prompting, which reminds me of an episode of a Canadian TV show called Little Mosque on the Prairie, hmm. which is a lot of fun. And you used to be able to find it on YouTube, but I think they started streaming it somewhere, so they took it off YouTube. Um, but go looking for it by all means. It is exactly what it sounds like. It's the story of a little mosque in a prairie town. There is an episode of that show where the mosque has a new convert come join them, and he is extremely fervent. And then as the episode goes on, you find out that this guy is not a bad person, but he is also known to several other religious communities in the area who have met him in a very similar way fairly recently. He's a little fickle. He, he wanders from place to place and comes to a new belief system and gets really excited about it for a little while, and then eventually wanders off and goes somewhere else. So, I've yeah. encountered those sorts of people. Yeah. Not necessarily bad people, just like that is a, a characteristic, I suppose. So, Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Catch us next time when we'll discuss nerdery connections to the scripture readings for the third Sunday after Epiphany, also known as Lectionary 3, with our special guest, Ms. River Needham, M.A., this podcast has been produced by us, Emily Ewing and Kay Rolla. For more fun, check us out on Twitter and Facebook at N-E-R-D-S-A-T-C-H-U-R-C-H, Nerds at Church, or contact us at nerdsatchurch at gmail.com. Also, if you like what you've heard, rate us or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever you catch your podcasts. If you appreciate what we do, or want to get actual transcripts of the podcast episodes, consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nerdsatchurch. We hope Patreon can help us get our episodes transcribed for those who need or prefer that, though if you want to help us with transcripts, let us know via email or social media. As the ancient Christians said, Pox, Pox Bobiscum. Bobiscum.